Welcome everyone to the latest episode of the 11th Century Podcast. And for today, uh, we're traveling east into, into Central Eastern Europe. And I'm joined by David Calhous, who's Associate Professor at Masaryk University in Brno in Moravia. He's written um, lots, actually, but written two books, uh, in particular on Czech history, uh, on politics and identity. Thank you very much for joining uh, me today, David. Hello. Thank you for your invitation, Charles. Not at all. Um, I mean, I'm only sorry that I haven't brought any um, Czech marinated cheese to 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 uh, go along with the conversation as as we had the last time we last time we met David in in Brno. Yes, I can bring you some. <laughs> please, please do, please do. For everyone listening, it's extreme. It's it's a, it's a, 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 a wonderful delicacy. Anyway, we're not here to talk about marinated cheese. We're here to talk about uh, history, 11th century history in particular. And David, let me begin actually, just a very general question what does the 11th century look like from the perspective of of bohemian or or, or czech history i mean it's a, it's a huge question but i thought we, we could start there well you are right that's that's uh, first huge question and second it's kind of a problem because uh, history and historiography is not used to be happening in centuries but either in events or uh, uh, in more long-term processes. Mm-hmm. So uh, what means one century in the history of, of one region is mm-hmm. quite difficult to say. But uh, when I had to choose one word, it would be probably s- stabilization of, uh, of the princi- uh, power of the Przemyslid princes, because... 11th century starts in Bohemia with complete crisis when it uh, seemed that the Przemyslids will lose their power and it ends with uh, the royal coronation or nearly ends with the royal coronation of one of the Przemyslid princes we will uh, speak more about a bit later. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's stabilization, it's... uh, regionalization of princely power because uh, princes support the foundation of monasteries and collegiate chapters in the regions. They also added to Bohemia another region which became part of the Czech lands uh, up to now. Uh, mm-hmm. It's Moravia, uh, uh, its eastern borders. Uh, for your imagination, it's north way from Vienna. Let's say if you go from Austria to Poland, you go f- through Moravia, which is a region with kind of a rich history, mm. uh, at least since the ninth century, when there was a, a principality competing for power with the Carolingians in its eastern borders of, of its kingdom. But uh, coming back to Bohemia, it's also about the intensification of the relationship with papacy and Mm -hmm. with uh, the imperial power. So uh, Przemyslids were involved in the investiture controversy and Prince Vladislaus II supported the Emperor Henry IV quite strongly. I mean, just to um, fill everyone in, so I mean, I mean, the Premislids are the first kind of bohemian 
ruling dynasty is that that that's the that that situation isn't it yes sorry i i didn't no, mention no. it um, uh, and yes. i'm very pleased you mentioned moravia too because obviously in the ninth century there's this you mentioned it the the the, the, the great principality of great of greater moravia um which is archaeologically very interesting isn't it but there is this shift from um east to west so the shift of uh, the, the power seems to shift more for me to, to, towards the bohemian region um which i guess is linked isn't it to the magyars and the hungarians yes exactly as you nicely summarized uh, yes the center of power was in southern moravia uh, in the ninth century and in that time the power of Przemyslitz was quite weak and focused on the region nearby let's say prague and it's maybe 30 kilometers perimeter mm-hmm. uh, but with the arrival of magyars and with the internal struggles within the Moravian uh, principality by the end of the 9th and beginning of the 10th century, the first Moravian principality collapsed and uh, that provided the Przemyslitz with enough space for breathing and for establishing their power in Bohemia and then in neighboring regions as well. And, and, it, and it sounds like what you were saying, what you were saying just now, then, that their relationship with the emperors was quite important in this stabilization process. So, in other words, the stabilization of their control in, in the area of Bohemia um, was significantly affected by their relationships with outsiders. So you actually meant, you mentioned the papacy as well, actually, as well as, as, well as the emperors. Is, is that right? There's a kind of integration then? Yes, definitely. The, the, the position of Bohemia and Moravia was quite complicated. Uh, when we should speak about the ethnicity and mm. how those identities in the area of uh, today's Bohemia and Moravia were established, it, it seems, at least in, in, in my perspective, that those are closely related with the establishment of uh, princely power and... Uh, with the relationship their strong western neighbor east frankish kingdom because you know bohemians are originally the people who live in bohemia uh, bohemia is old uh, antique term mm-hmm. used by antique geographers for 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 that area and the carolingian authors just took this term over Mm-hmm. And when when this area came into the contact with the East Frankish Kingdom, uh, they just called the people here Bohemians, people from Bohemia or Sklavi Bohemenses or mm-hmm. Sklavi Marahenses, people coming from Bohemia or uh, Slavic-speaking people living near the river Morava. And I think it was at the beginning exonym, so it was the name given mm-hmm. them by the foreigners, when they were asked to pay tributes as a group and when they were pushed by the imperial uh, quite an aggressive strategy together, I, I think it had an impact on the establishment of the common identity. And it provided them also with a basis for the establishment of the princely power. 
So, I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, obviously, David, identity is is uh, one of your books you've recently written is is exactly about this question of where um, identity um, in this period, where group identity in particular, collective identity comes from, and how we know about it. So, your point here is that it's not so much there was a pre-existing kind of bohemian people who then choose a leader. It's more complicated than that. I mean, the the emergence of a collective identity of the bohemians is linked to the uh, dynasty of the premises and also, yeah, that point that, that actually this is uh, that, 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 that interaction with people from outside that community. Uh, well, what I would maybe add is the a name you probably very well know. It's St. Wenceslas. Uh, uh-huh. uh, it's, it's known from Christmas carols. In, well, that's in, right. In Britain. It, it, this is the right season. Uh, yes, and we are in the right season, but that good King Wenceslas, even though he was not king, he was just a prince in the neighborhood of the empire, he lived uh, by the beginning of the 10th century, and uh, he left a really rich and important legacy in, in, in Bohemian history, because even his brother, who was responsible for his death, Either he killed him himself or his uh, uh, retinue killed him. Established his uh, saintly cult. He became uh, a saint quite soon. Indeed, uh, after his death, he died 935. So uh, approximately in 960s, he was already venerated as a holy man or as a saint. And he became patron saint. Uh, who should have protected Bohemians and Moravians. And uh, lately, in 11th century, we come back to our topic, he transformed to the nth eternal prince of the Czech lands. So the future Przemyslit princes presented themselves as hers of St. Wenceslas, and he pr- uh, presented their rule as something which is provided by God through the hands of St. Wenceslas. So Wenceslas appeared in the coins uh, at the beginning of the 11th century and uh, he appeared in princely seals and even now I think uh, St. Wenceslas has some potential identification of potential in, uh, in Bohemia and Moravia because his statue is uh, uh, to be seen in one of the main squares in Prague. And it's a place where the people meet or when where the demonstrations start quite often. Okay, so still by the statue of Wenceslas. That, that's fascinating. Uh, so yes. that's really interesting that this point you're making here about the interconnection then between the dynasty and the people and these are you know the the, the, the bohemian people and the and the premise dynasty are kind of so closely linked together and that wenceslas as this kind of heavenly um uh, the, the patron saint i guess kind of helps helps bind help, helps cement that connection mm-hmm. um and he's still okay and he's still and, and uh, as as well as christmas carols he's still he's still obviously a figure to um, um in 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 the czech presence um just to come back to that, we, we, you mentioned briefly this figure called Vladislaus II, and he's interesting for me anyway because the Czech 
going to see the the premises are mostly dukes but Vratislaus II was a king uh, if I'm right if I'm actually made king in 1085 um is this a kind of you know is this a major turning point in Czech history or or not particularly well that's a very interesting question uh, Vratislaus uh, became a duke 1061 and ruled for quite a long time he died 1000 92, so for 31 years, and many things uh, happened during his uh, long reign. But uh, his coronation is one of the interesting and important points. Uh, from my perspective, is maybe imp- more important in general perspective than in the perspective of Bohemian history, because you know the church when I go into more general level, it seems that the church slowly uh, established the control about uh, control over the uh, read the passage over death or over marriage or over the change of the statue uh, status uh, social status of, of the people uh, since the early middle ages and the establishment of new Prince was one of those moments, hmm. but it seems that since the seventh, eighth century, when first uh, coronation and are traceable in in, in the sources, uh, I think these were just the pretendants of the throne that were in kind of danger or lack of legitimacy, hmm. and I think the 10th and 11th century are quite crucial periods when those uh, ecclesiastical coronation and other rituals became binding for for any king so is it so it's the clerics who crown it's the church who who, who crowns Vladislav II exactly or it's it's a cooperation of the emperor and of the church because hmm. uh, Bratislaus was a strong supporter of Henry IV, and it was the emperor who crowned him personally first in in Regensburg in Bavaria, uh, who gave him royal circle into his head, and Hmm. he also asked Archbishop of Trier to go to Prague and to provide all necessary rituals in the uh, main Bohemian Church, uh, St. Vitus at St. Wenceslas Church in Prague Castle, uh, which was in the time Episcopal Cathedral. I mean, this is very interesting because well, there's a tradition of interpreting the period of the investiture controversy, uh, the investiture quarrel, as 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 you know the long tradition of seeing just church versus state and so on. But I guess the coronation of Vladislaus II is goes totally against that because here we have, in the context of the quarrel between emperor and pope, we have here a leader being made into a king by the emperor with the full cooperation of the of the of the ecclesiastical hierarchy. Yes, the, you you made perfectly the point. So the investiture investiture controversy is quite a complex and complicated thing where the particular interests were often hidden behind the rhetorics of struggle between two powers. Hmm. Uh, If we come back to that coronation uh, and if it's significant or not, Mm -hmm. well, 
as I said, it's it's important from the journal perspective because, uh, as you mentioned before, the Przemyslit rulers were were called dukes uh, in the imperial sources, and even if we uh, look into the Chronicle of Cosmos of Prague, written at the beginning of the 12th century, which which is the chronicle and main source of information for Bohemian 11th century, uh, which was written in Prague, they still called Przemysli dukes. So uh, it seems in the time was already important to be coronated to become a king, which was not necessary before, because some of the Przemysli princes are called by 10th century chronicles kings, even though Uh, we can be quite sure that they were not crowned. And it's also the case of many Viking leaders who mm-hmm. called himself kings, but really? uh, it's not very probable that they were no, 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 exactly. uh, coronated either. So uh, we are in the period of time where those rituals of power became stabilized and for the legitimacy of the a royal title was important to, to get crowned and coronated. And what's also fascinating, and it would be worthy of further analysis, is the fact that Bratislav became king, but his hers were again dukes. So uh, the historians, Czech, German especially, struggled if uh, over the question if Uh, that royal title was uh, intended just for him, mm. which would be a total exception in real history, or if uh, there had been some problem with the royal crown in the in Bohemia and Moravia with his, the acceptance of the title, let's say by by the elites in 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 those lands who felt endangered because. Mm. Uh, they were used to elect their, their prince. To de- they were used to decide who will mm. be the prince, and the coronation from the, the hands of uh, uh, archbishop would provide Przemyslit with additional source of legitimacy, which would have limited their right to elect. Mm. That's another theory, and as the Przemyslit princes had seen that they disagree with the title, they might have resigned on it. But actually, these are all theories. We, we do not know exactly what happened and why the next king of Bohemia was Vladislaus, who was grandson of Vladislaus II, and continuous line of Przemyslet King starts with the 13th century of Przemyslodaka I. Okay, so Vladislaus II is a kind of one-off uh, at, at that time. Yes. That. Okay, that's that. for reasons which mis- which remain mysterious. Um, David, you mentioned actually that leads me on to my next question. You mentioned briefly the the historiographical debates about this um, on the part of German and Czech historians, and I mean that does lead me on to the question of how the historiography has changed over the over recent times. Um, I mean, what what what's your what's your kind of quick take on that? Um, how the writing history about this period has changed over the, say, the last couple of decades. Sure. Maybe I, I should start with two short historiographical uh, comments. Uh, first, 
Bohemia and Moravia was uh, at least since 13th century inhabited not just by Czech speakers, by Czechs, but also by, by huge German minority, which was uh, approximately one third of the population in the Czech lands, where the identity of those people was quite fluid. But since the 19th century, there was always a strong elite court core of Czech and German speakers. Sometimes the people changed their identities. Sometimes the the struggle was quite harsh. They existed uh, two universities in Prague, one for Czechs and for, one for Germans. So it has definitely impacted the research. And second thing, uh, for 40 years uh, of the communist regime, the research on medieval and early modern history was not priority. Priority mm-hmm. was the research on modern history and how the industry was established and how the communists came to power, etc. Et et mm-hmm. So personally, the Czech uh, or the historiography of the Middle Ages was never very strong in the Czech lands. We are speaking about uh, quite a few people uh, so the struggle among them could also have some person dimension. Yes, uh, I see. <laughs> but what changed? Uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, the Czech historians tried to catch the train of modern historiography as uh, it was the case in all countries of uh, Europe. Germany was kind of a model Many of those people studied by, by Georg Weitz. Also here was established a historical seminary which pushed press on scrutiny of the sources. Mm-hmm. And uh, they also wrote kind of a detailed uh, analytic work on the history of the Czech lands until the end of the 13th century. Václav mm-hmm. Novotny who did it which was made on a model of uh, so-called Jarbicher der Deutschen Geschichte, which is mm-hmm. also something similar, quite detailed. Yeah, the spade work, I guess, the spade work. Of yes, kind of, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, now the historiography is more problem-oriented. It also tries to reduce all those nationalistic uh, tones uh, which are traceable in the historiography of 19th and 20th century. Mm. When I should uh, pick up one problem, it's the relationship between Bohemia or Czech lands and the East Frankish Kingdom or Holy Roman mm-hmm. Empire. It's, it's her. Uh, from the perspective of uh, older historiography, the German historians stress uh, the dependence of the Czech lands on the empire and that the empire was a source of culture for for Czech lands which enlightened the people here in Bohemia Mm -hmm. uh, through the German speaker. Of course, Czech-speaking historians struggled with that. (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah, stressed the independence of of Czech people and uh, their state and they also uh, stress the importance of the princes who uh, kind of opposed 
the emperors were able to crush them in battle. So these were a famous moment in Czech history from the perspective of the historiography. So I, I think we, we left those things behind, mm-hmm. at least if we take the academic historiography in consideration. Now it's quite popular, uh, the, the study of rituals of power mm-hmm. and also new reading of the Chronicle of Cosmos of Prague as a source of uh, political thinking, let's say, and political and scholarly imagination rather than um, source of, of, of the exact data. Yes, okay, so you can't just mine Cosmas for what happened in 1020s, whatever. You need to kind of read it as a work of the early 12th century. Yes. Exactly. Um, there's a very good English translation, by the way, for everyone listening, by of, of, uh, of Cosmas of Prague by, uh, I think, Lisa Wolverton, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And she also wrote a nice analysis of that chronicle. We don't necessarily need to agree with all she wrote, but <laughs> it's... Uh, it's inspiring and it uh, provides you a fresh look. And, uh, well, it's it's also the only monograph for the Cosmos of Prague. <laughs> uh, and now there is a new translation published by CEU, so oh. Um, oh, uh, published I, I, maybe a year ago. So. I, I didn't know that. Thank you, David. I'll, I'll look into that. Um, okay, and also, I guess, I should also, of course, the interest in identity and identity formation, which your own work has, has, has your, your, um, your recent, more recent, the 2018 book you wrote has talked more about that. So part of the kind of cutting edge of Czech historiography. I'm pleased you mentioned that the Cosmas is kind of popular, because that brings me on to my next question, which is, how much of this is taught these days in schools and universities? I mean, you say that under communist, under the communist regime, there was not much focus on the on the Middle Ages um, because it was focused, obviously, on, on industrialization and, and 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 the rise of communism itself. But so, does that mean it's it's more popular now and it's more widely taught? Well, the, when I'm speaking for Bernard, uh, so here, eleventh century is uh, uh, quite important. Uh, because uh, there are quite many scholars interested in in Przemyslit era, mm-hmm. which is between the 9th and 13th century. However, in other uh, universities in the Czech Republic, the the experts on Przemyslit era are quite rare. The focus is mm-hmm. more on late medieval history or on archaeology, mm-hmm. uh, because... We didn't mention it, but uh, from the perspective of Czech historiography and also from the perspective of journal historiography, the main period of Bohemian history is 15th century and Hasid era, which Jan is Hus. understood. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. which is understood as a kind of prequel of uh, European reformation of the 16th mm-hmm. century. Uh, so compared to that period of time, 11th century is kind of a Cinderella, which uh, has not so much place in, in, in schools and universities. And Brno is kind of an ex- exception because it's it's due to specific situation because uh, in all universities in Czech Republic, there was a problem after 
Velvet Revolution after the fall of the communist regime. Uh, the old professors, many of them were not allowed to teach uh, history on the universities. They mm. had to work as uh, workers. So many of them returned and they had to reestablish the medieval studies in the Czech Republic. And uh, many of those peoples were, people were in their 60s in the time. So they were before retirement, let's say. Mm-hmm. And uh, they lack of a partner. They, there was no middle generation. And in Brno, uh, they were lucky to find uh, three guys, uh, three young students who were focused Two of them were focused on Przemyslit era and they were quite charismatic. So they were able to fascinate a generation of students, one of them being me, uh, <laughs> for the study of uh, early and high high Middle Ages. So it's it's Brno, but in Prague, the history went in different way in, in Olomouc as well. These are, I think, the main centers of Uh, studying medieval mm. history in, in Bohemia. And as I mentioned uh, here, the, the late medieval history is the most important chapter and a focus on it. Um, thank you. That's very interesting, especially that point about that the, the missing generation, that, that, yeah, that kind of skipping a generation because of the Velvet Revolution. It's, um, um, it's always interesting, isn't it, to see how modern events, Um, the events around our own lives kind of um, feed into how we how we perceive the past, um, which leads me uh, very neatly onto my final question for you, David, which is simply, what are you working on at the moment? Well, one problem, uh, one project is related to what we were speaking about because I come back to Cosmas of Prague. Uh, I didn't mention that uh, this was a key narrative of uh, Bohemian medieval history because it was quite popular. It's a chronicle of Bohemians. So let's say regional chronicle, uh, geographical focus of which is Bohemia and Moravia, uh, and especially Prague in its close neighborhood. And personally, it's focused on Przemyslet princes and bishops of Prague. But despite of this all, Uh, there exists 13 medieval manuscripts, which is quite a lot, which are from the end of the 12th century until the end of 15th century. So uh, the time span is also quite, quite uh, huge. And uh, interesting is that those texts were further continued or enriched by uh, local authors, Uh, mostly chroniclers from local monasteries. So uh, it, it all seems that Cosmas dominated the, the discourse of Bohemian history uh, since the beginning of the 12th century until the 13th century. Mm. I think there are not many parallels to this in uh, Central Europe or uh, maybe in, in, in wider context either. Uh, because all Farther narratives of uh, Bohemian medieval history were ba- were based on it. On, at the beginning of the 14th century, it was replaced by two other chronicles, but still those authors used Cosmas as their as uh, their source of information and as a model. 
So well, what I would like to focus on is uh, the manuscript transmission of Cosmos, codicological mm-hmm. and polygraphical analysis of the manuscripts on, on one side. Uh, on the other side, I'm interested in how the authors of 14th century transformed uh, Cosmos message, what mm-hmm. they did and why uh, with the chronicler to make it living for father generation. And here again, uh, it's important to stress that those two authors, uh, Dali Mill and Přibík Pulkava, those 14th century chroniclers were again quite popular. Dali Mill is more than 10 manuscripts mm-hmm. and Přibík Pulkava has 40 manuscripts and both chronicles exist in in Czech, German and Latin medieval versions. So uh, there was definitely uh, an attempt to impact all language groups in uh, in the Czech lands, all social strata, because those chronicles are written in simple Latin or uh, simple Czech or simple German. So it's it's all, all fascinating. And I think it's a very interesting moment where the auxiliary historical science sees the analysis of the text, uh, cultural and political history and identities meet in one point. So uh, I'm quite curious what, what I will find out. At the moment, I'm at the beginning, I have uh, the polygraphical and codicological analysis done, but uh, there is still lots of work to do. Well, David, I think after listening to that, I think we're all curious as to what you're going to find out. It sounds like a fascinating project. And and uh, and, and I, I, I'm sure many people, but I really look forward to reading about that in, in, and hearing more about it in, in due course. Um, we should probably wrap things up there. But thank you very much, David, for, 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 for joining the podcast today. Yeah, you're welcome. It was glad to, see, to hear you again. Thank you.